Hey, this is Jeremy Isaacs, lead pastor of Generations Church, where we want to live like it matters. For more information about our church, you can visit us at g.church. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. Thanks again for listening. Sometimes when things happen like that, you're like, man, that sound guy, what is his problem? That was my fault. I apologize. So, hey, I'm glad you're here today. Welcome to those of you that are in the room. Welcome to those of you that are watching online. We're glad you're here wherever you are from. If you are watching online, let us know you're here. Drop in the chat where you're watching from. I know we've got a bunch of folks traveling uh, in this season, but uh, we're glad that you're here today. We never take it for granted. I was walking through our worship center right before service started, and I said, man, is it raining yet? I'm thankful that it held off. Hopefully, it'll hold off until, well, maybe it'll just hold off all day long. You have a great Sunday, but if it does rain, I hope it rains after you get home and you don't have to walk through the rain. But if so, we've got an amazing team of folks that'll help you get to your cars and let you borrow umbrellas and all those kinds of things. But we are thankful that you're here. Uh, it's a great day already. Been a great day all day long here. We've had folks in the building for several hours. That's what's so amazing about some of the just incredible leaders and volunteers that we have here. Um, they've been in the building for hours and hours anticipating your arrival. And I'm thankful for that. You heard about the G team party and all the team night stuff. But uh, I just want to say to all of our team members, uh, whether you serve in this room, you serve upstairs in our G Kids environments, you serve as a G group leader, uh, you, you are a part of one of the teams that we have, I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. I'm so thankful for you. I walked around today with just a great sense of gratitude uh, about who you are and all that you do here to serve the people of this community. But uh, man, we had an incredible week last week. If you weren't here, you missed Sunday fun day. Uh, it was awesome. We had a great day. We, uh, we threw axes and people dunked me in a dunk tank. And uh, it was funny. I, I told the team, I said, hey, I'll just, I'll be in the dunk tank. But they said, well, I guess that'll just have to be after the second service. I was like, nah, it'll be fine. I'll do it after the first service. Then I'll go change. So I did that. I was thinking, man, nobody's going to hit that thing. But I got dunked a lot in between the 930 and 11 o'clock service. So much so that, I mean, I had a towel and, and I dried off and a change of clothes. And I walked into the 11 o'clock service to sit right here. And Randall, who sits behind me here, he's like, man, you are dripping. I mean, I was soaking wet. It was crazy how wet I was. So thanks to those of you that dunked me, whether you did it legally, like with the ball, or you just hit it, Lord will judge you for that. But that's all right. Um, we ate tacos and Kona ice and just had a blast. It was a lot of fun last week. And so if you weren't here, we missed you, uh, but we really did just have a wonderful, wonderful time together. Today, you heard on the video that it's the kind of the second week of our G group launch. Uh, we, we launch our groups. Most of our groups don't meet yet for another week or two, but we try to really consolidate our efforts to sign up. And so we've done that last week and again this week. And if you are not yet in a group, we would love for you to do that. On your way out today, just stop through the lobby there for just a couple minutes. You have an opportunity to meet some of the leaders, ask questions, and to get signed up for a group. We, we believe in the power of community. We want to help you do that and, and to find that. I talked a few weeks ago about grief share and young adults. I talked last week about our three women's Bible studies, our four men's groups. Uh, this week, I just want to hit quickly, we've got a number of what we call community groups. They're kind of stage of life groups. Some of them meet in homes, some of them meet in restaurants once or twice a month. And it's really just a great way for you to connect to other people. Uh, there's usually curriculum or a discussion around the Sunday sermon or a book that you're working through together, some other spiritual conversation that takes place within that group. You pray together. But it's also just a great time for fellowship and community together. And so we've got two groups for those that are over the age of 55. We've got some young family groups. We've got couples of all ages. So there's just a number of ways that you can get connected. I'd love for you to consider one of those groups. But uh, I'm excited about this semester 
in groups, and I hope that you'll be a part of that. Today, we are in week three of the series that we started two weeks ago, fittingly enough, uh, called Object Lessons. And I told you in week one that you can learn a lot of different ways, you can hear a lot of different things with your ears, you can see a lot of things, but there is something special maybe about touching something, holding something to really help the truth to come alive. And so each week we've sent you home with something to help kind of help you remember or unpack what it is that we discussed together. So the first week we talked about the wise man who builds his house on the rock, and we talked about the foolish man who builds his house on the sand, and we sent you home with a bottle of sand to just say, hey, we build sand castles and these things that won't stand against the storms and the pressures of life. Last week, some of you were in such a hurry to get outside to Sunday Funday, you missed it, but we talked about these Lego pieces and how those can become, if we give those pieces to God, these beautiful pictures uh, of something that God can create in our lives. And so we had these little Lego pieces. And some of you, if you didn't grab those, we have extras today in the back. And then today, I want to talk to you about one of those things in Scripture that is so easily misunderstood. It's often confusing. And sometimes I even hear the word gross. Uh, so buckle up for that. But uh, I want to talk to you out of the Old Testament about the story of the children of Israel when they were in captivity. Now, if you remember last week, we talked about the story of Joseph. We talked in Genesis chapter 37, really through Genesis 50. Uh, we just unpacked his whole story really in about 15 or 20 minutes, just kind of walked through the entire narrative of his story. And uh, if you remember towards the end of that story, we said that Joseph had moved all of his family to Egypt. Well, then Joseph's dad dies. Eventually, Joseph dies. And the Pharaoh that had, you know, in his heart, his heart was kind of towards Joseph, he dies and there came this other Pharaoh that rose up, and he starts to see that the, the family, the lineage of all the sons of Jacob, Joseph's father, all the sons of Israel, they're becoming a pretty large group. And so it's like, okay, well, what am I supposed to do with all these people? So he decides so that they won't overtake him and won't overtake his people, they're going to take all of those people into captivity. They're going to take them into bondage, and they're going to make them their slaves. And so now you have this period of time, and if you take it really from the time that all of Joseph's family moved, it's about 230 years. If you go all the way back to kind of the Isaac and Ishmael part of the story of Abraham, it's the 400 years that you would read about in the Old Testament where God's people are in captivity. They are facing persecution under the hand of an oppressor. And so now you have these people that are under oppression and there comes a moment when uh, the, the Pharaoh decides we're going to kill all the newborn baby boys because there's this idea, there's this, this word has gotten out that there's going to be this savior who rises up and redeems all these people and sets them free. And so they're going to kill all these young boys. And so Moses is this miraculous story where his mom decides, I don't want him to die. I want him to live. And so she hides him in this basket in the river. And then Pharaoh's daughter comes down and sees this basket and this very supernatural story brings uh, Moses to the palace. But after his mother had the opportunity to nurse him and, and after he's weaned, he's kind of raised up there. And then, he, and then he comes and he grows up in Pharaoh's house. Well, he thinks there's something special about his life because there is. And so he's going to be the protector of his people. And so what happens is one day he walks out in the fields and he sees that there's an Egyptian who is mistreating a Hebrew. And he thinks, well, I'm the guy to protect the Hebrews. And so he attacks the Egyptian and eventually kills him. Well, then he gets scared, so he buries that guy. That probably took a few minutes, right? Sounds like a mob movie. So he buries that guy. He goes back to Pharaoh's house. And the next day he comes out. There's another argument happening. He didn't think anybody saw what took place. But when he comes in to protect the Hebrew against the Egyptian, he hears, oh, what are you going to do? You're going to kill me like you killed the other guy. Well, now he's afraid. Now he's scared. So he takes off running. 
He goes out into the wilderness. Eventually, again, I'm shortening the story. You can read it for yourself. But eventually, he ends up on the backside of the wilderness. He's tending his father-in-law's sheep. And this voice calls out from a burning bush and says, Moses, Moses, take off your sandals. You're on holy ground. And he gets instructions from God that he is to go and set God's people free from the captivity they find themselves in. That's, in a nutshell, the entire calling of the story of Moses. Well, Moses says, listen, I don't, I don't speak very good. I've got this stuttering problem. He's like, all right, I'm going to send somebody with you, but it's really my voice anyway, but that's fine. I'll send someone with you. So he sends a helper with him. And now he's got to go back to Pharaoh. So he goes back to Pharaoh, and he has these conversations back and forth with Pharaoh about letting God's people free. And this is the place that we read about the plagues, the plagues in Egypt. There are 10 plagues. I'm not going to talk about all of them, but I'm going to read them out so that we know what they are. Here's the 10 plagues that Moses and Pharaoh kind of discuss, and then we see supernaturally demonstrated. The first is water turning to blood. Then there's frogs. Then there's lice. I think we had that in kindergarten. I don't know if that was a plague or just kindergarten. Then flies. Then livestock death. Then boils. Then hail. Then locusts. Then darkness. And then the death of firstborn children. I mean, these are some really severe things. They kind of start you know, water, turning to blood, like that's gross. Then there's frogs, like, oh, okay, well, like it just keeps getting worse and worse. And then I want to just kind of read here out of Exodus chapter 12. So if you got a Bible, I'd love for you to go there with me to Exodus chapter 12. We're going to read together the passage of scripture that relates to that last plague, this part that's so often misunderstood and kind of lands heavy in all of our hearts. This is what we read beginning in verse 21. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and the sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. And when you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the, then the people bowed down and worshiped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was a loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. Now, this is a difficult story to read. It seems to reveal a harshness to God, perhaps. It results in the loss of life. It is remembered through festival and celebration among this Jewish people. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. But I want to acknowledge right up front as I've been reading through this passage that this is a tough story to read. It's tough to think about what happens on one side of the equation, and it's tough to understand why this took place on the other side of the equation until we really unpack it. But I want to point out just a few things here before we really dive deeper into this. First, Pharaoh had at least nine other opportunities to let God's people go. So this is, the, is it really the end of their conversation. At the culmination of what we just read, that's when Pharaoh sends word to Moses. He says, get all your people and get out. Now, eventually, his heart turns again, and he chases them, and that's where we see the dividing of the Red Sea. But Pharaoh, in this point, it gets his attention, and he releases God's people to leave from captivity. Each plague was more severe than the last. So this was the culmination 
of a process, not some knee-jerk reaction. Second, I think this story reveals a larger truth about God's character, which is where I want to spend the remainder of our time today. I think there's a few things that we can see in this story, even as difficult as it is to read, if you look at all of the various components that actually reveal something about God that I think it's important that none of us miss. The first thing is this, and it's going to land a little heavy, I'm sure. There's no other way to word this. Death is the price for sin and separation from God. Aren't you glad you came for all this uplifting content today, right? But death is the price for sin and separation from God. I know that doesn't sound awesome to hear, but that's truth according to God's word, whether I want to say it or you want to hear it. When we are saved, we are brought from death to life. We're not just brought from being a bad person to a better version of us. According to God's word, in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it says this, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's not just, oh, I told a little white lie. It's saying, no, there is a separation from who I am to who God is. There's a chasm that we just sang about. And something has to exist to cross that chasm. Because again, it's not just going from a a bad person to a better version. It's saying, I was dead in Christ. I, I was dead in this life. And I was dead in my own sin. But it was through the work of Jesus Christ that I found life. I saw on Instagram the other day, and some of you, I mean, if if there's five people in the room that get this reference, we're going to go have church after this. But there used to be a Christian contemporary group called Point of Grace. Yeah, nobody. All right, that's what I thought. They sang a song, listen, they sang a song called There's a Bridge to Cross the Great Divide. They did it in harmony. It was beautiful. You'd have thought they were related. But it was like, there's a bridge to cross the great divide. Yes, there's a cross to bridge the great divide. Unbelievable lyrics. I I wish I could do that and weave together lyrics that make sense like that. But there's a chasm between who we are without Christ and who we are with Christ. And that chasm can't just be filled by good works. There is a death that is the price for sin, And something has to cross that chasm. And so what we see is that the gift of God is eternal life. The gift of God is that he crossed that great divide with his son, Jesus Christ. And not only does he want to give you life, he desires that you would have life and have it more abundantly, Scripture tells us. He doesn't want you just to get to the other side. He wants you to be able to flourish and to thrive in the way that he's Intended. So death is the price for sin and separation from God. Here's the second thing that we see in this story, and we're going to see it over and over and over in Scripture. A sacrifice is required for salvation. It's not just enough for God to say, hey, I want to save you. It's not just enough for you and I to say, I want to be saved. There is something that has to be sacrificed going all the way back to the original content of the law, That in the Old Testament, every time something bad happened, every time a sin or transgression took place, there was a sacrifice of some kind that was required. If you were the poorest person in the group, like you didn't have two nickels to rub together, you still had to find something that you could provide as a sacrifice. You had to find one thing of grain. You had to have some crop of some kind. If you had any animals in your possession, you had to bring one of those animals, and they were spelled out in the law of this kind of animal sacrifice for this type of transgression. And so much of that was spelled out because for salvation to take place, for you and I to stand before God, there must be a sacrifice. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament says that we are to be a, what, living sacrifice, 
That it's no longer that you come and you, 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 you slaughter an animal or that that blood is necessary. Why? Because God knew that that chasm had to be crossed and he provided what was necessary in that divide. And that was Jesus Christ. God knew. He knew and so he provided it. And Matthew chapter 20 and Mark chapter 10 describe Jesus' role as coming for the ransom of many. He paid the price for all of us that were on this side of the chasm to find our way to this side of the chasm, from death to life. He was the ransom. He paid the price necessary for all of us to make that journey. John chapter 1 verse 29 says this, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God. That's interesting terminology there. Why? Because for every family among the Israelites in the Passover story of Exodus 12, they had to offer a lamb. If you didn't have a lamb, you had to get together with another family who did, and you had to find a lamb big enough to be sacrificed for everyone in that household to take the blood out of that lamb. I know, gross. I know it's disgusting. I'm sorry. Take the blood out. And then all of you together were supposed to eat that lamb, and you couldn't allow any leftovers. It's not like Thanksgiving. We're going to make turkey sandwiches tomorrow. Like, you got to eat it all tonight. It's got to be done. You got to follow the letter of the law. And what I love about a portion of this story is like no detail is left unturned. Like, every detail is accounted for. They weren't supposed to eat any unleavened bread. They weren't supposed to eat anything that had yeast in it. There was nothing there because there's a lot of reasons. One, throughout Scripture, we see that yeast is about something that's spoiled, something that could spoil. And so you don't want even a little bit in there that would cause anything to be, un, to be defiled or to be, uh, to be different than what it was originally intended for. So they couldn't eat that for seven days or maybe 30 days, depending on the festival that continued. It was also so that they could be ready to eat. They didn't want to get filled up on a bunch of bread. They wanted to be ready to eat so that they could eat all of this lamb, this Passover lamb. And now John is pointing to Jesus, and all of these Jewish people would have been standing around as John points to Jesus and says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's a connection here to who Jesus was, who Jesus is, and the events of Exodus chapter 12, the story of the Passover. And so as we see these dots begin to come together, we start to see some of these things take place. It's interesting all the parallels that happen, and I don't have time to unpack all of them, but it is interesting to me that here the firstborn of all of Egypt is killed as punishment. The firstborn of every household in Egypt, from Pharaoh's house who sat on the throne to the prisoner's house who was in the dungeon and every animal in life, every single house was affected because their firstborn was killed. But in the Gospels... It was God's firstborn, his only son, who was sacrificed so we would not have to be punished for our sin. I want you to think about what God was asking of these people. I mean, I've told a bunch of stories. I don't have time to tell a, a bunch of these. But like sometimes when God has asked me to do something, I will have that like internal argument. Sometimes I turn into like crazy Uncle Joe. I'll have that argument right out loud. I'll be like, no, God, you don't mean that. Like, I'm not supposed to do it. I mean, people are looking at me like, I don't know who he's talking to. But I mean, I'm just, I'm trying to convince God that he, he's wrong. And like, I don't, I'm not supposed to do that act of obedience, whatever it is you're calling me to do or asking me to do. And yet so many times God is saying, hey, listen, all I'm asking you to do is trust me enough to be obedient. That's what he asked the children of Israel to do in this story. He says, 
when you go to sleep tonight, now you've, you've experienced the, the frogs and the lice and the water turning into blood and, and all of the very locusts. And I mean, you've seen all these crazy things happen and every single time it looked like Pharaoh might, but then he didn't. And so you're still under oppression. So as an oppressed people, as slaves, here's what I need you to do. I need you to be crazy obedient. And I want you tonight not just to prepare this lamb that you've been watching for seven days to make sure there's no defects. I want you to go to your front door. And I want you to take a paintbrush, which was really a hyssop bush. And I want you to take the blood of that Passover lamb. And I want you to paint blood on your door. I just, I just want you to paint it on the top, and I want you to paint it on all the sides. I want you to make sure you get it good and covered, because something crazy is going to happen, and I know it doesn't seem like it makes a lot of sense to you right now, but what I need from you is I need crazy, crazy obedience. And they had a choice, just like we have a choice, anytime God asks us to do something that doesn't make sense in our heads. Do I trust God enough to do something crazy. So he says, here's what I want you to do. I just want you to paint. And so you paint. And then nothing has happened. You're supposed to go to bed. And I'm telling you, I believe it because humanity is humanity all the way back to the beginning. I believe there were some people that went to bed thinking, well, tomorrow I've got to paint the door back. <laughs> you know, they did. They're like, I'm, I just defiled my door. Like, what are we doing? I mean, we ate well, so I mean, I'll have energy to do it. We ate well, but I've got to gotta repaint my door tomorrow. And they go to sleep, and in the middle of the night, all of the events that we've already read about take place. And they didn't have to repaint that door, because in the middle of the night, word comes through Moses, get all of your stuff, and let's go. These people that have been under oppression, they've been slaves for hundreds of years, generations have passed, and this is the only thing they've ever known. Because of crazy obedience, God sets them free. Could it be, could it be, thank you, could it be, could it be that the thing that's separating you and me from freedom is crazy obedience? Could it be that the one thing we're asking God to do is just on the other side of what we're unwilling to do for God? Could it be? Those people go to bed that night, crazy obedient, probably a little concerned, and then their entire lives change in an instant. And you think, wow, that's an interesting story from the Old Testament. But we've already alluded to the fact that it didn't stay in the Old Testament. It also takes place in the New Testament. There are some dots you got to connect to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so Jesus arrives on the scene, supernatural birth, so interestingly connected to the supernatural birth of Moses. Similar type of oppression, similar type of command to kill these newborn baby boys. Jesus arrives supernaturally. He's on the run for his life with his parents for the first few years of his life. But it's obvious he's been set apart for special purposes by God. He does ministry. He heals the sick. He teaches in ways that confound even the smartest religious leaders of the day. 
He comes to the end of his life. He's been telling them about the events that were to come, the cross and his resurrection and going back to the Father and leaving them and leaving them the Holy Spirit who would be a comforter to them, but they did not understand it. And so there comes this moment at the end of Jesus' life and his ministry where they're going to take part in the most natural thing that any Jewish men would do together. They're going to celebrate the Passover, and we read this in Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 17. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, this is one of three festivals that were laid out, including the Passover, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? And he replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him the teacher says my appointed time is near and I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. Skip to verse 26. And while they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. What we reenact with communion, which we're actually going to do in just a few moments, is not just the reenactment of the meal. It is the reenactment of the Passover meal of Jesus and the disciples. What were they doing when they sat down? They ate a meal together to remember the salvation of God in Exodus chapter 12. Every single time they would eat the Passover meal together, they were doing so, and there was ritual. There were things they read and things they said and things they prayed, things that they ate and things that they did not eat because they wanted to remember that God was their salvation back in Exodus chapter 12. It was this great reminder of his power and his strength to deliver them out of captivity. And so Jesus sits with his disciples to eat this Passover meal, and he gave them the elements of communion. And he said this, this is my body. I'm the sacrifice. It's not the lamb from your flock. It's me. What you've done every year at this point in time, during the 15th day of this month, on this calendar, it's always been the lamb from your flock, but it's not that anymore. It's me. This is my blood over your life to save you from death and to give you life to give you an escape from captivity. This blood is the new covenant. There was an old covenant. This blood is the new covenant. What is the new covenant? Well, the new covenant spelled out in the Old Testament again. Jeremiah chapter 31, the prophet Jeremiah says this in verses 31 through 33. He says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. Because of Jesus Christ declaring himself the blood of the new covenant. He was the Passover lamb. Look, behold, the, the Passover lamb, the lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. It changed for everyone, including for me and you, if you do not have any Jewish descent in your family tree. Because the story continued into the book of Acts 
where the gospel was awakened to Gentiles, those that were non-Jews, and that includes me and so many of us in this room. We now had access to the gospel through Jesus Christ, this good news of salvation and freedom. In its original context, the Passover was absolutely about getting God's people out of Egypt. But in this context here, the Passover lamb, Jesus, is also about getting you out of whatever's holding you captive. The blood over the door of your life is about leading you to freedom in your life. It's about your salvation. It's about forgiveness. God loves you so much that he was making new covenants and declaring promises about your life long before you and I ever got here. Don't believe the press clippings. When people try to paint God as this mean and angry, vindictive being. God is loving and compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's abounding. He's overcoming in his love and his grace and his mercy to us. Crazy obedience is all he asks of us. He says, listen, I'm actually providing what's necessary for the divide. You don't have to bring a lamb. You don't have to bring an animal. You don't have to bring grain offerings anymore to atone for anything. I'm providing the atonement. The book of Romans tells us that God's love is demonstrated to us in this, that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet, before you could be good, before you could do good, before you could attend here, before you could give, before you could serve, before you were nice to people, before you were morally good, before all of those things, God demonstrated his love to us in this, that he provided the blood necessary. He provided the sacrifice. You don't have to anymore. I don't have to. All we have to do is say, God, I receive the free gift that you've extended to me. I, I, I take what you've already done. It's completed. Everything else in our life is I've got to achieve, I've got to do, I've got to become. And Jesus says on the cross, it is finished. It's no longer necessary for you to keep striving and working for it. Just crazy obedience. Just paint the blood over your life. And walk through the doors of freedom that he's been providing for you. Walk through the doors of forgiveness that he has provided for you. He's done the work. And so when you leave today, on your way out, I encourage you to get this little red wooden stick. It looks like a popsicle stick. We wanted to send everybody home with a door, but we weren't sure it'd fit in your car. My son Tucker saw this today. He's like, everybody's going home with a door. Yeah, we have stock in Home Depot. That's what we do. No, just a, just a piece of wood with red on it. So that every time the enemy tries to tell you you aren't enough and every time he tries to remind you how big a failure you are and every time he tries to remind you that you are held captive in the sin and transgressions of your life and the addictive behaviors that have continued to be a part of your story, maybe going back generations, all you've got to do is remember that the crazy obedience that he asks of you has already done the work. The Passover lamb, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's done. It's done.
So here's what I want you to do today. I just want you to bow your heads right where you're at. Nobody's looking around just for a moment. We're going to take communion together in a second, but before we do, I want to give every one of us the opportunity to respond in some way to respond to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. To say today, and if this is you, I encourage you to respond. Jeremy, for me, I, I've, I've not been crazy obedient to the point of salvation. I'm kind of living my own life, doing my own thing, and I need to accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior today. I need him to forgive my sins and to be the Lord of my life. Whether you've ever prayed that prayer ever before or you've prayed it a hundred times before, but you, you mean it today, deep in your heart, recommitting yourself to that. If that's you, would you just lift your hand right where you're at? I want to pray for you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And now if you would say to me, Jeremy, for me, it's about freedom. It's captivity. It's bondage. I've got something or some things in my life that are holding me back. They're oppressing me. They're keeping me from living in freedom. And I want the blood to be enough. And I'm claiming that today, right now, in this moment. If that's you, would you lift your hand? Nobody's looking around. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Everybody look at me before we pray. If you raised your hand, I want to tell you with great confidence, you are not the only one. In the call for salvation, we probably had a half dozen, maybe more than that. In the call for freedom, there might have been 30 or 40 hands in the room. So what I'm telling you is do not believe the lies of the enemy. When you walk out of this door and you get back in your car and you think, man, I'm a, I'm a failure. I'm by myself. Nobody can relate to me. Yes, they can. Yes, they can. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And guess what? The blood is enough. So let's pray. God, we love you today. I thank you so much for salvation. I thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ. I thank you for the cross. And God, I pray for every hand that was lifted to say, I want to be saved today. I want to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. God, would you help them to see that that relationship is right before them. You've already done the work. It is a free gift only to be received now. So God, we thank you for that. And Lord, I pray for every person that lifted their hand that says, hey, I'm, I'm in bondage. I'm in captivity. God, today we pray for freedom. It's available. It is what you desire for them. You sent your one and only son to provide for their salvation, but also for their freedom, to unlock the chains that the enemy has over their life. And God, I pray when they leave this place that they would walk in the freedom that's available to them, that there would be a confidence and a boldness because of who you are. It's finished. It's done. Let us live in that now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening. If today's message was an encouragement to you, we invite you to share it with your friends and family. Maybe subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. It just helps us spread the word about what God's doing here at Generations Church. For more information about the church, visit us at g.church. Have a great day, and God bless.